Hebrews chapter 7. Again, we're continuing in our series today. Week 1, I laid out uh, the foundation for the series uh, by giving you some background of the book, and then I gave you an overview of the book of, of Hebrews. Week 2, we saw clearly that Jesus Christ is greater than angels, and we also saw the first of five warnings about drifting away from God's Word. Week three, we saw how Christ is greater than Moses. It was also the second of five warnings about drifting away from the word of God. It was an encouragement to remain faithful. Week four, we saw Jesus Christ is our perfect high priest. Now we're going to go into that more today. That's a little preview of, uh, you know, some of it may sound like we've talked about it. We talked about it a little bit, but I'm just following along with the author of Hebrews in chapter seven. Uh, we're going to continue that thought. And then week five was a call to spiritual growth. If you remember, just to kind of tie back in week four, he starts talking about him being a perfect high priest. And then he has this pause, almost like he redirects and says, I have more I want to teach you, uh, but I don't think you can understand it or handle it right now because you basically need to grow more spiritually. And then week six, Pastor Rob showed us how Jesus is our anchor of hope. And then last week we took a break and Brother Glenn Dushar and preached for our Father's Day service, which was a great word, a uh, great Bible teacher. And I know it stirred some of you up to get water baptized. And so if you missed any of those, uh, you can go on our website, our Facebook podcast, our app and catch up on all of those. So again, this week in Hebrews chapter seven, before we get into that, let me ask you this question. If any of you, if any of you like a uh, kind of a uh, 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 movie, like mystery movies or mystery books, like murder mystery kind of books or anything fictional stuff like that. All right. So, you know, if you've watched any of those or if you like those, uh, these fictional stories, you were, you know that you got to be careful not to overlook any character in the story, right? No character is incidental because that very person could be the criminal or it could be a very uh, strategic part of that story. So if I were to ask you to name the most important people in the Old Testament, I doubt the name Melchizedek would come to your mouth. I've never heard anybody say that, right? Because he only appears one time uh, in Genesis. We read about him, Genesis 14, and then he's referred to only once more in the Old Testament, and that's in Psalm 110. Verse 4, but the writer of Hebrews, as he's writing this, the Holy Spirit calls him to reach back in the Old Testament and use these two passages of scriptures to present a most important truth. And that, that is that the priesthood of Jesus Christ is more superior than the priesthood of Aaron and the Levites of that day. See, Hebrews chapter 7 introduces the second main section of this epistle, and it's the superior priesthood of Jesus. So in Hebrews 7, the writer begins to argue that Christ's priesthood, like Melchizedek's, is superior in order. Then chapter 8, it's the emphasis is on Christ's better covenant. That's what we're going to look at next week. That's what I mentioned as we talked about the new covenant during communion. Hebrews chapter 9 is its better sanctuary. Hebrews chapter 10 concludes this section by arguing Christ's better sacrifice. And those we're going to just continue on along the next few weeks. See, the nation of Israel was accustomed to the priesthood of the tribe of Levi. The tribe was chosen by God to serve in the tabernacle, and Aaron was the first high priest appointed by God. In spite of their many failures, the priests had served God for centuries, but now the writer of Hebrews is affirming that their priesthood has come to an end. So to defend this statement, 
And to prove that the order of Melchizedek is superior than that of Aaron, he presents three important facts we're going to look at. But before we get into that, I want to read the record uh, first recorded uh, about Melchizedek since it's only a few times here in the Bible. It's in Genesis 14, and we're going to read Hebrews 7. So look at Genesis 14, 17 and 20. It says, After Abram returned from his victory over Cato Lamar and all his allies, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheba, that is, the king's valley, and Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and a priest of God Most High brought Abram some bread and wine. Melchizedek blessed Abram with this blessing. Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God, Most High, who has defeated you, defeated your enemies for you. Then Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the goods he had recovered. So that's where Melchizedek is first shown. And then once quoted, and which we'll see here in a minute in, in Psalms, and then now Hebrews chapter 7. Let's read verses 1 through, the, through 10. This Melchizedek was king of the city of Salem and also a priest of God, Most High. When Abraham was returning home after winning a great battle against the kings, Melchizedek met him and blessed him. Then Abraham took a tenth of all he had captured in battle and gave it to Melchizedek. The name Melchizedek means king of justice and king of Salem means king of peace. There is no record of his father or mother or any of his ancestors, no beginning or end to his life. His, he remains a priest forever, resembling the son of God. Consider how great this Melchizedek was. Even Abraham, the great patriarch of Israel, recognized this by giving him a tenth of what he had taken in battle. Now, the law of Moses required that the priests who are descendants of Levi must collect a tithe from the rest of the people of Israel who are also descendants of Abraham. But Melchizedek, who was not a descendant of Levi, collected a tenth from Abraham. And Melchizedek placed a blessing upon Abraham, the one who had already received the promise of God. And without question, the person who has the power to give a blessing is greater than the one who is blessed. The priests who collected tithes are men who die. So Melchizedek is greater than they are because we are told that he lives on. In addition, we might even say that these Levites, the ones who collect the tithe, paid a tithe to Melchizedek when their ancestor Abraham paid a tithe to him. For although Levi wasn't born yet, the seed from which he has come, the seed in which he came was in Abraham's body, when Melchizedek collected the tithe from him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that it's rich and awesome and powerful and true and there's so much there. Lord, help us as we look at these passages of scripture today that you would help me as I preach your word and help us all to receive it and most importantly to apply it to our lives that we would grow and come to know you more and love you better. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So he gives three important truths in Hebrews chapter 7. Number one, we see here the historical truth. The writer of the epistle wanted us to note several facts about this mysterious man named Melchizedek. First, he was both king and priest, as we saw in verse 1. He's the king of Salem and the priest of God Most High. I've already mentioned earlier in this, this series that in the Old Testament economy, the throne and the altar were to be separate. If you were a king, you couldn't try to be a priest. And we saw examples. If that happened, God would judge you. But here's a man who's both offices, holds the office of both king and priest. See, Aaron never had this privilege. It was important to note that Melchizedek was not a counterfeit priest. He was the priest of God most high, as it said in Genesis 14. And as Hebrews repeats, he had a legitimate ministry. Amen. This wasn't an offshoot bootleg ministry. He was a true priest of God most high. So that's the first thing. Second, his name is significant. 
In verse 2, we see that his name is King of Justice and King of Salem, which means King of Peace. See, in the Bible, names and their meanings were very important. In our culture nowadays, a lot of people don't even look at the meaning of their children's name before. You should. It's very important. We looked at all of our names and the meaning of our children first because names have power. Words have power. Amen? Now, I believe if you named your child something that you didn't know, the Lord could redeem that. But I would encourage you, if you hadn't had children or you want to have children, look at what their names mean first. It's very powerful. See, many, again, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. In the Hebrew language, it's actually, that's what it means. The word Salem means peace, and we know the Hebrew word means shalom. So that Melchizedek is the king of peace as well as king of righteousness. Why is this important? Because righteousness and peace always are, are, are often go together in Scripture. If you look at it throughout Scripture, you'll see these words. Actually, there's a Scripture in Psalms that righteousness and peace have kissed. They're actually there. They're, they, co- they, they come together. And I'll show you one of them. See, true peace can be experienced only on the basis of righteousness. Say that again. True, the true peace of God can only be experienced based on righteousness. How, Hebrews 5.1 tells us if we want to enjoy the peace of God, we must be justified by faith. And that term means declared righteous. And what does that mean? It doesn't mean that we're righteous in all we do. It means that we have a right standing with God. You'll never experience the true peace of God until you're truly in right standing with God. Many of you could have testified to that, right? I tried to find peace in a bottle, in a joint, in pills before I got saved, and it was very temporary. And when it wore off, it was even worse. It was the the complete opposite of peace. But when I got saved and I was in right standing, I was justified just as though I had never sinned because I repented and got saved, the true peace of God came upon me. And bless God, the peace of God still in my life and has increased. And this only happens through the work of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, that righteousness and peace comes together. Remember, this is all pointing towards Jesus. Next, Melchizedek received tithes from Abraham, verse 7. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 2. Then Abraham took a tenth of all that he had captured in battle and gave it to Melchizedek. Now, we'll see the importance of this fact in verses 4 through 10 in a minute. But if you're not familiar with the tithe, the word tithe means one-tenth. Under Jewish law, the Jews were commanded to give God one-tenth of their crops, herds, and flocks. These tithes were brought to the Levites, to the Levites, in the tabernacle, and then later in the temple. If the trip was too long and they couldn't bring their grain, fruit, or animal, they could convert the tithe into money. So this shows, we, matter of fact, the tithe is still in practice today. Jesus himself, people argue, let me say this, Jesus himself, people argue sometimes if tithing is Old Testament or the law and all of that. All I know is Jesus himself said, yes, you should, you should tithe. If Jesus said it, no pun intended, I'm taking it to the bank. And I, no, really, I'm taking my tithe to the storehouse. And listen, people try to argue that point, but verse 2 actually shows that tithing didn't originate with Moses or the law. Tithing predates the law, right? Because Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek. Let me go a step further. Archaeologists are finding that actually other nations even brought their tithe to the temple and to the storehouse. So when people say tithings are the law, I'm set free from the law. No, it predates the law. And again, I don't know, you can try to 
explain theologically away the tithe, but I know this. Malachi 3 says that if you bring the tithe to the storehouse, I will open up the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing so much to where you can't contain it. And since I've been saved, I've been tithing, and you can't convince me, you can show me the scriptures right side, left side, reading it, standing on your head if you want. In Greek and Hebrew, you're never going to convince me that tithing's not biblical because I've seen the evidence of it. And God is the only place in the Bible where he says, test me on this. And see if I will not open up the windows of heaven. But I'm just showing you also, people try to argue with you that tithings of the law. This scripture makes it clear that it actually predates the law. Next, Melchizedek's family, history is different. Hebrews 7.3, and there's no record of his father or mother or any of his ancestors. No beginning or end to his life. He remains a priest forever, resembling the son of God. Now, many scholars do believe that he was a man. And so he did have a mother and a father. But there's no record of his genealogy in the Old Testament. And this is significant because most great people in the Old Testament have their ancestry identified. Now, because there's no ancestry, some people believe that he was a pre-incarnate of Christ, that he wasn't actually a man. Kind of goes back to the author of this book, right? We don't know who wrote the book. We won't know exactly if Melchizedek was a real man, which it seems as I study, it points to he was. But because... Uh, there's no record of him being born or dying. We really would never know. We do know it's a type. It's a shadow. It's a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. Though Jesus died at Calvary, it was not the end. Amen. He rose from the grave, and today he lives in the power of endless life. Amen. So again, remember, we're looking at all these things, these doctrinal things. When you look at even the law itself, what I'll get into, or a mysterious man like Melchizedek, it's all pointing to Jesus, not so we can get into 30-minute theological arguments about it. Amen? The whole focus, I hope that you're seeing the whole point of this series, is to glorify Jesus. It's to point to Jesus. It's to make Jesus clearer. Amen? Also, Melchizedek had authority, and we know that because he was able to receive these tithes and also bless Abraham. We see the greatness of Melchizedek and the fact of both. He gave the tithes from the spoils of battle. And then Abraham acknowledged the authority of Melchizedek when Melchizedek blessed Abraham in a special way. Now, let me say this. This was not just a normal blessing like today. A lot of times we'll greet each other. God bless you. Maybe somebody at store. This blessing in the original text, this was a blessing when he blessed Abraham that uh, uh, that a someone in authority would bless a subordinate. Uh, or a father blessing a child, or a priest blessing his people. So it was, the way it's written, it was a blessing from authority over Abraham, right? So in receiving, uh, giving the tithes and receiving the blessing, Abraham acknowledged that this man had authority, just as our Lord Jesus does as well, right? And the paying of the tithes involved not just the patriarch Abraham, but also the unborn generations that would come from him, right? It's interesting that Abraham acknowledged the greatness of Melchizedek and the tribe of Levi was also involved, right? It said that it's almost like the Levites, even who started receiving the tithes, in a sense gave tithes to Melchizedek because his seed, their seed was already in Abraham. What's the application here? As Brother Glenn said it so powerfully last week, what we do today can affect generations. Whether it's praying, worshiping, witnessing, tithing, what we do today, parents, grandparents, as Brother Glenn challenged us dads, what we do today affects generations. Amen? What Abraham did that day affected generations of Levites and priests for years to come. Amen? 
Now let's look at the second truth the writer lays out in Hebrews, and this will be the doctrinal truth, and it's found in Hebrews 7, 11 through 25. So if the priesthood of Levi, on which the law was based, could have achieved the perfection God intended, why did God need to establish a different priesthood? With a priest in the order of Melchizedek instead of the order of Levi and Aaron. And if the priesthood is changed, the law must also be changed to permit it. For the priests were we are talking about belongs to a different tribe whose members have never served at the altar as priests. What I mean is the Lord came from the tribe of Judah and Moses never mentioned priests coming from that tribe. This change has been made very clear since a different priest who is like Melchizedek has appeared. Jesus became a priest not by meaning of a physical requirement of belonging to the tribe of Levi, but by the power of a life that cannot be destroyed. Remember, he's pointing all this back to Jesus. And the psalmist pointed this out when he prophesied, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. That's quoting Psalm 110 verse 4. Yes, the old requirement about the priesthood was set aside because it was weak and useless. For the law never made anything perfect. That's some pretty strong words, right? He's talking to Hebrews, Jewish Christians, and he's saying the law is weak and useless and that it could never make anything perfect. I'm just trying to put this in context. This would have been shocking for a lot of, for all Jewish people to hear. But now we have confidence in a better hope, as Pastor Rob talked about, through which we draw near to God. This new system was established with a solemn oath. Aaron's descendants became priests without such an oath, but there was an oath regarding Jesus. For God said to them, or to him, the Lord has taken an oath and will not break it. You are a priest forever. Again, Psalm 1104 is what he's quoting there. Because of this oath, Jesus is the one who guarantees this better covenant with God. There were many priests under the old system for death, prevented them from remaining in office. But because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. Therefore, he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. Come on, that's the crescendo here. He's, he's building it up. This is all talking about, hey, the, the law can't save you. The, the, the priest can't save you. The, those sacrifices can't save you. Only Jesus once and for all can save you. And he lives forever to intercede with God on our behalf. Now, there was a lot of verses, but in this section, the writer took his argument one step further. Not only is Melchizedek greater than Aaron, but Melchizedek has replaced Aaron. It is no longer the order of Aaron or the Levites. It is forever the order of Melchizedek. Our Lord Jesus is our high priest in heaven under this order. So why would God make such a radical change? Well, I'm glad you asked, because both the priesthood and the law, as we just saw, were imperfect. Now that word translated perfect or perfection here are keys in this epistle. It essentially means completed and fulfilled. So when he said the law could not uh, uh, make anything perfect, what he was saying was the law was not completed. It was temporary. It was pointing towards Jesus coming, and Jesus is the perfection, the completion, the fulfillment of what everything the law was pointing to. Amen? And remember, all of this Melchizedek, all of this stuff is pointing towards Jesus. The Old Testament priest could not complete the work of God in a person's heart. Hebrews 7:19. for the law never made anything perfect. See, the animal sacrifices could not give people right standing, perfect standing before God. The law was not a permanent system. It was added as a schoolmaster to prepare the way for the coming of Christ. The Apostle Paul talks about the law is a schoolmaster to show us our sin and how much we needed Christ. And since the priests received this authority to be priests from the Old Testament law, this priesthood had 
for a new priesthood to start, it had to be changed. So there's also had to be a change in the law. Did you know that? Think of it this way. The President of the United States cannot proclaim himself king of the United States because the U.S. doesn't have a law permitting the president to become king. In order for a president to do that, the law would first have to be changed. So if we got a high priest from the line of Judah instead of Levi, what had to happen? The law had to change. And the law, in essence, was changed whenever it was fulfilled. Watch this. The entire system of the law has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ and it was taken away. You can go and look at that in Colossians chapter 2. And also, the believer has been set free from the law in Galatians chapter 5. Amen? It was essence in changed when it was fulfilled in Jesus. Now, let me say this before I move on. Because we know we're not under the law anymore. We're free from the law. But this new arrangement does not suggest as believers that because we're not under the law that we can be lawless. Free from the law does not mean free to sin. Amen. Let me make that clear. I've heard many Christians justify that. Well, brother, I'm free. I'm not, I'm not legalistic. I'm under, I'm not under the law anymore. Well, but that doesn't mean you should be lawless. Amen. It means we are free to do the will of God. Amen. We obey not out of our compulsion like the law would do back then. And today, people that are religious still, they, they obey because of outward what people are telling them to do instead of an inward constraint. See, the Holy Spirit in us enables us to fulfill the righteousness of the law when we yield to Jesus. Amen? We fulfill the law when we are obeying the Lord, when we know we're in right standing with God, and we don't have to obey and sacrifice and do these different things. Amen? Are y'all tracking with me? We're not under the law, but we shouldn't be lawless. We need to allow the Holy Spirit to help us to live free from sin. Amen? Next, it was because that the priests were imperfect and the priesthood could not last forever. Hebrews 7.15 says a different kind of priest has appeared. The Levitical priests were made priests by the authority of, again, a temporary and an imperfect law. Jesus Christ was made priest by the declaration of God. Verse 18 says the law was weak and useless, so it could not continue forever. But Jesus is the eternal Son of God. And verse 17 says he lives by the power of a life that can never be destroyed. See, the enemy and his naysayers thought they had him when he died on the cross that day. They thought he was done and he was destroyed. But Hebrews tells us we know he rose from the dead and he lives a life that can never be destroyed. And not only does he live that life that can never be destroyed, now we get to partake in a life that will never be destroyed either. Yeah, your body might stop working and breathing, but come on, eternal life has just begun. Amen. I've heard people say technically when you get saved, eternity has begun because in essence, we're never going to die. Our bodies are going to die, but like somebody said, you know, we're just going to change addresses, right? We're just relocating. Amen? The writer kept in mind also the temptation that the readers were facing to go back to the old system temple. Remember we talked about the temple was still was still in operation. Priests were literally still sacrificing uh, animals when this was written. When he's telling them all of this, he's saying, hey, all that sacrificing they're doing down at the temple, that's gone. That's over with. Jesus has come, he has rescinded to heaven, and now he has replaced all of that. That's why he reminded him in verse 19 that Jesus Christ has accomplished what the law could never accomplish. He brought in a better hope, and he enables us to draw near to God. Just as Pastor Ross said, if you missed that message, I encourage you, he is the anchor of our hope. Also, God's oath cannot 
be broken. You remember in verses 20 and 21, he made a solemn oath. This new system was established with a solemn oath. Aaron's descendants became priests without such an oath, but there was an oath regarding Jesus. For God said to him, the Lord has taken an oath and will not break his vow. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus is the one who guarantees this better covenant with God. I love that. How many times it said oath there? Quite a few times. When God makes a promise and takes an oath, it can't be broken. Amen? Going back to tithe, that's why when God promises, if you'll bring the tithe, I'll open up the windows of heaven. Come on, that, that promise doesn't stop because we're living in the New Testament church. Amen? It's the same thing. And we'll see in a minute. Jesus, we know, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, no priest in the order of heaven was Aaron was ever ordained or established based on a personal oath from God. Those priests ministered according to only the physical requirements of belonging to the tribe of Levi. It's sad, but their moral and spiritual fitness wasn't even examined. The main requirement is that you were from the, the tribe of Levi. Basically, who you were uh, in, in, in descendants and in body, not who your heart or your character was. And that was very, very dangerous. Jesus, on the other hand, his priesthood is established based on the work of the cross, and we know his character and the oath of God. Now, notice that the introduction to this oath in verse 21, the Lord has taken oath and will not break it. The matter is finally settled and cannot be changed. Amen. The presence of this oath gives us a greater degree of permanence and assurance. I love this. Verse 22 says, Jesus Christ guarantees this better covenant with God. Come on. It is guaranteed. Y'all, the word guaranteed means one who guarantees that the terms of the agreement will be carried out. It's not us has to worry about it, determining if it's going to be carried out. Jesus guarantees that this new covenant will be carried out for all of eternity. Come on, I should lift some, some weight off of your shoulders. I guess the nearest equivalent today would be if a bondsman posted bail for someone uh, under indictment, they would guarantee that that person indicted would appear in court and stand trial. People post bond with bail money. Jesus did it for us with his blood. Amen. And he guarantees that we're going to be able to stand before the Father. The word covenant, verse 22, is actually mentioned 21 times in this letter and is the equivalent of the term, the last will and testament. We'll examine this word more closely next week in our study of, of chapter 8. Because of God's oath, Jesus' priesthood is irrevocable, so our covenant relationship with God is secure. Just as we celebrated through communion this morning, church, next time you take communion, not only think about what he's done, as, as Paul mentioned, we look forward to him coming again. Think about the security we have when we do communion. The security in this covenant. Jesus has guaranteed it. Amen? The last reason why God changed the order of the priesthood is because, of course, they were human, and eventually the priests would die. And you see that in verses 23 and 25. Not only was the priesthood imperfect, but it was also interrupted by death. There were many high priests because no priest could live forever. But in contrast, we know Jesus Christ lives on forever. An unchanging priest means an unchanging priesthood. And this means security and confidence. As I just mentioned, Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? Yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13, 8. You know, and that's his, again, he's talking about a covenant. is like his will, last will and, and testament. You know, a lot of us, I say a lot of us, some of us may know people that have gotten a hold of someone's will after they've died, whether it be a family member or a business partner, and we know they have mishandled and misused that will for their own 
personal gain. We know that Jesus' will, his last will and testament, his covenant is never going to be misused or, or on our end. Or we're not going to be duped in any kind of way. Amen? That's the great hope that we have. He wrote his will. He died to take, make it take effect. Then he rose from the dead and ascended to heaven. And he's validating his own will right now in heaven as our great high priest. Amen? I want to read Hebrews 7.24 in the New King James. He's, but he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. The Greek word translated unchangeable carries the idea of valid and unalterable. The word was used at the end of legal contracts. See, this term refers to something that can never be changed, like the rising of the sun and it going back down again. Because the Lord's priesthood in heaven is valid and unchanging, we can have confidence in the midst of this consistently changing world. Isn't that great news? As I just thought about it, I mentioned it another way in the first service. This is an unalterable covenant. It's unchanging. Our world's changing. Come on, they're trying to alter kids by how they feel. If y'all know what I'm talking about. Amen? Based on what they feel instead of how they were born and how God has established it, right? The world's constantly changing our morals. We're being the ones called evil now, right? We're being the ones called intolerable because we're not allowing children and their parents who want to mutilate their own kids, basically. Are y'all following me? God's word and his covenant is unchanging. Although this world may change, standards, what they say, which again, it's no surprise. The Bible says they would call good evil and evil good. And that's the day and age that we live in. It's just funny because one of the top politicians, when there was a law against pro prohibiting all this mutilation of children and them wanting to change who they are, he actually said that for, to permit children to lie to do that was evil and almost sinful. Isn't that amazing how they use the same words as the Bible to, to try to justify their straight rebellion towards the Bible? Amen. But the world's going to continue to change. You get crazier. And that's why things like this should give us great hope and confidence. Our God's not going to change. Our covenant's not going to change. The priesthood's never going to change. Amen? The writer concludes this doctrinal truth with verse 25. Therefore, he is able once and forever, key word forever, to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. The emphasis is on the fact that Jesus saves completely and forever all who put their trust in him. The basis for this completed salvation is his heavenly intercession. The word translated intercede simply means to meet, to approach, to appeal, and to make petition. Now, don't get the idea that God the Father is angry at us in heaven, so Jesus has to constantly appeal to him for him not to judge us. No, that's not how it works. The Father and the Son are in total agreement of the plan of salvation and this covenant. Amen? Go back to John 3.16. For God, that's God the Father, so loved the world that he sent his son, and whoever would believe in him would not die, but have everlasting life or perish, right? They're in complete agreement. Intercession involves our Lord's representation of his people at the throne of God. Through Christ, believers are able to draw near to God in prayer and also offer spiritual sacrifices like worship unto the Lord. It has been well said that Christ's life in heaven is his prayer for us. It is what he is that determines what he does. Now that we see this, right, I mean, he does make intercession for us. But again, I want you to, to think that it's, it's, it's some, you know, God's angry. Some people still have that mindset. I feel like I, I have to say that. Some people still have a mindset that God's up in heaven uh, with a chalkboard and ready to put an X by your name or with a stick ready to bang you over the head. 
right? But intercession is, makes it possible for us. Jesus intercedes for us, and he makes that possible for us to draw near to the Lord. Amen? Now that we see both the historical and doctrinal truth are sound, the writer adds a third and final truth to this chapter, and this is where we're going to conclude today. Number three, the practical truth found in the last few verses of Hebrews 7, 26 through 28 says, And he is the kind of high priest we need because he is holy and blameless, unstained by sin. He has been set apart from sinners and has been given the highest place of honor in heaven. Unlike those other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices every day. They did this for their own sins first and then for the sins of the people. But Jesus did this once for all when he offered himself as the sacrifice for the people's sins. The law appointed high priests who were limited by human weakness. But after the law was given, God appointed his son with an oath and his son has been made the perfect high priest. It doesn't matter how devoted and how obedient the, Levit the Levitical priests were. They could not always meet the needs of the people. Let me just stop and say, as much as I want to help you and serve you as your pastor today, I can't meet all your needs. But our great high priest can meet all your needs. There's not a priest or a pastor on planet earth now or forever that's going to be able to meet all of your needs. But Jesus, our perfect high priest, can. Amen? One of the reasons is because I've sinned just like you have. I can't say I'm spotless and unstained and, uh, and blameless from sin, but Jesus can. Amen? He perfectly meets all of our needs. Again, the emphasis on this scripture is Christ's sinlessness. Being perfect, he's able to exercise a perfect ministry for his people. Because of their sins, unlike the Old Testament priests, not only were unable to serve people, but they actually abused people. If you read the Old Testament, you'll see that. They actually took advantage and would abuse people, and you see why. Because they weren't looking at their character, their heart for God. All they were looking at was what, what tribe they came from. And that, that ended up in being a, a very tragic thing, right? But this could never happen with our Lord Jesus Christ and his people. The Old Testament priests were set apart for their ministry, so in a sense they were holy, but they were not always holy in their character. Verse 26 says, Jesus was blameless and unstained by sin. And again, Jesus Christ is the only person to ever be able to claim this. When he was ministering on earth, he was a friend of sinners. We see that. But his contact with them did not defile his character or his conduct. There was contact, but not contamination. Let me say that again. He was, he had contact with sinners, but it didn't defile him because he didn't allow it to contaminate his character or his contact. By the way, we can take note of that. We got to go and we need to preach and we need to be evangelistic, you know, to others. But as soon as you trying to witness to a sinner starts affecting you and you start acting like them, then guess what? You're losing the battle. You need to back off. Our contact shouldn't produce contamination. I like this as well. Jesus was, uh, was not isolated, but he was separated. We don't go live in a, a Christian bubble. We, can, we still got to be a light to the world around us, right? But we still can live separate. The Bible says, come out from amongst them and be holy. Separate yourself. Doesn't mean you isolate, but it means your lifestyle is separated from them. Are y'all tracking with me this morning? Verse 27 gives another proof of his sinlessness because our Lord had never had to offer a sacrifice for his own sins. We hit on that a few weeks ago, so I encourage you to go listen to that as well. See, we're prone to sin daily and even hourly sometimes, and we need to be able to turn to Jesus for help. Our great high priest, Jesus Christ, gives us the grace we need, not only when we sin, but let me say this, the grace we need not to sin. 
See, grace is not just for whenever you mess up. No, the supernatural grace of God actually helps you not to sin. It empowers you by the Holy Spirit to live a life that you desire not to sin. But if we do sin, he's our advocate interceding for us as God's throne, as we mentioned. You can see that in 1 John chapter 2 as well. And if we confess our sins to him, he forgives us and restores us, as 1 John 1, 9 says. Verse 28, God appointed his son with an oath, and his son has been made the perfect high priest forever. What he's saying is that our high priest suits us perfectly. Amen? He's exactly who we all need, what we needed back then and what we still need today. Come on, how many of y'all need the Lord's help? How many of y'all need Jesus in your life? He is, the priesthood is more superior because he's a perfect high priest. I want to read two more verses as we close and then we're going to pray that I've read a couple of times. And I think this is the culmination of all this. And he's telling the, the Hebrew Christians who still got the temple operating, priests still working. He's telling them. Again, it's easy for us to maybe see this today, but they were still seeing priests sacrificing animals. Like, listen, you don't need to do all of that anymore, right? There's, that, there's, that's, there's no need for any of that. Hebrews 7, 24 and 25. But because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. Therefore, he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. Have you come to God to save you yet? I mentioned it in communion this morning, but I don't ever want to close the service without giving you another opportunity. The only way that you can come to God is through Jesus. That's another thing that they've tried to change consistently over the years is, oh, everybody gets to heaven. There's many different ways to get to heaven. Even some Christians have bought into the lie that there's another way to be saved and to come to God. But Jesus made it clear himself. He said, no one comes to the Father except through me. We see clearly here, all through the scriptures, right? The Bible hasn't changed, so that hasn't changed. Amen? So if you say today, Brandon, you know what, man, I don't know if I'm in a right relationship with God. I don't know if I've ever been saved. Would you just bow your heads? with me? And if that's you, you say, man, I, I need to get right with God. Talking about an eternal high priest, and we're going to live for eternity somewhere, either heaven or hell. What about you today? As we're praying for all these people, one in the hospital, one on hospice, one at the funeral home right now, it shows you the, the brevity of life. How, how quick life goes. I read about a college football coach, 55 years old, who died. They don't even know the cause of death. It just reminds me day in and day out. We're not promised tomorrow. If you say, Brandon, I need to be saved. I need to be born again. I need to give my life to Christ. If that's you today, just lift up your hand just as a sign of surrender to Jesus. If that's you, say, that's me, Brandon. That's, that's me. I, I want to surrender my life. Let me see your hand today. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Ma'am, I see your hand over there in the back. Praise God. Anybody else? Thank you for being bold. Anybody else? Over here, ma'am, I see your hand. In the middle. Thank you, Jesus. I see your hands. Over here in the back. More hands going up. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. If you say, I was once serving the Lord, but I've gone away. That's me today. Come on. Those of you with your hands up, keep them, keep them high. We're going to pray with you as a family. Let's pray together this morning. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving me and being my perfect high priest. I know that I've sinned. And I repent of my sin. I turn to you today, Lord, and I surrender my life. Now, would you give me the grace and the strength to live a life that glorifies you all the days of my life? In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen and amen. Come on, can we celebrate and rejoice with those this morning? Congratulations. 
God bless y'all. Hey, if you prayed that prayer for the first time or first time in a long time, there's a connection card in the chair in front of you. Fill out that card. We'll have a Bible for you. Bring it to the info center. We'd love to meet you, my wife and I. Would you stand up with me? Come on, let's pray. I want to pray a blessing over you as you go. Come on, can we pray over kids camp this week? Got 250 precious kids that'll be on this uh, campus this week. And let's pray for a great outpouring of the Spirit. Amen. Come on, that the Lord would touch them. Father, I pray for all those, all of us that heard this today, Lord. Help us to continuously see you high and lifted up, Lord Jesus. May this message and this series continue to point to you in all your glory, your goodness, and your perfection. Lord, I pray for all these that we would apply this to our life each and every day. Now let's pray for camp. Father, we pray for these 250 children that will start coming on this campus tomorrow morning. Would you pour out your spirit upon this camp this week? Would you pour out your spirit upon our staff and upon all of our leaders, all of our serve team? That'll be helping. Hundreds of people are helping this week, Lord. I pray grace upon grace be upon them. Lord, I pray students like these children would be saved. They come to know you, to live free, find their purpose, and they begin to make a difference. Fill them with your spirit. Bring healing, help, and wholeness. And may they have fun. May there be a wall of protection around every child, every staff, and leader that'll be here working today. May you be glorified through this camp all this week. Bless these as they go today, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, Amen and amen. Well, God bless you. If you need prayer for anything, we'll be down here to pray with you. Have a great day.